but I but hang on because my 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 pillow fell down with all that frustration. Welcome back to My Listen Guys, a bi-weekly podcast about BBC's Merlin, where we talk about the show, the ships, the fandom, and the characters. My name is Momotastic. And I'm Miss Snowfox. And we're not actually bi-weekly this month, because yeah. <laughs> last episode was last Sunday, and new episode is this Sunday, and next Sunday there's yet another episode coming out to get a lot of Merlisten in just a couple of weeks. Exactly. The reason we decided to slide this episode in between the two others is we want to play catch up with all the comments you guys have been leaving since the beginning of the year. We are still very far behind in commenting on all of the ones we want to comment on. So we still have comments from as far back as the 2nd of January. So, you know, we really, really gotta work on that. So yeah, this is what we're going to be doing today. We're going to react to a lot of comments that you guys left on our episodes and it's going to be a lot of interesting discussion, so it's definitely worthwhile to listen to this one. Of course, if you're not a big fan of the talkback segment in general, you can just skip this episode. We won't be angry with you at all if you do, but if you want to hear our thoughts on your comments, this is the episode to listen to. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Before we get into that, let's have some news because if we have an, a podcast on this Sunday, might as well add some news. Merlin Cannon Fest is still open for claiming episodes. Two dozen episodes remain unclaimed, so if you'd like to create something inspired by a specific Merlin episode, go and check out this challenge. Camelot Remix began posting yesterday, so go on and check out all these new fan works. On Thursday, the 20th of June, rough drafts and summaries for After Kamlan Big Bang will be due. Unless you're pre-matched, you'll have to submit at least 15,000 words of your draft or 60% of the final story, as well as a summary for your story to be matched with an artist. Alright, and now that we're done with news, let's get into all of the talkbacks. Yeah, only the talkbacks. <laughs> only... Only the talkbacks. There's nothing coming after the talkbacks except us saying goodbye. So <laughs> yeah. let's get into all of the talkbacks the entire episode long. Okay, the first one is from Ellerwin, who commented on our Elian and Percival character episode. And Ellerwin said this. I think that Elian isn't used much in fandom works because he's a terribly bland character on the show. At least for me. I just can't really think of much when I think of him. Not that Percival has it any better. Usually I just think something along the lines, Big arms, probably cuddly, Gwen's boyfriend. While for Elian it's something like, Gwen's brother, appears from nowhere, gets stupidly killed off. I wouldn't really ship Percival with anyone if Gwen wasn't there. I mean, like I said in the episode I think, Elian actually has more depth and characterization than Percival does. 
but it's still not a lot in either case. Like, neither of them has really, you know, deep characterization and stuff. But they're, they're side characters, so that's not super surprising. But with Elian, we get the intrigue of where has he been all this time? Why did he leave? How did he learn sword fighting? But we don't actually get answers to these questions, which is a bit sad, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Meanwhile, for first of all, we only wonder how Lancelot met him. And unless you know the deleted scene we mentioned on the episode about Percival's village having been burned down by Senrit's men, you don't really understand why he's so loyal to Arthur right away. Like, if you just watch the show and know extra material, then you're just like, why why does he just follow Arthur? Like, yeah, so Percival as a character doesn't really make much sense in the way he's presented and with what they've cut from the actual episode that gives us more of his character. And... Listen, I don't want to offend anyone, but you could have not have had him on the show and nothing would have changed. All the things he brings to the table could have been done by other characters. Meanwhile, a bunch of the things that Elian was used for, only Elian could do. You know, being paid for Gwen, for example. <laughs> but, so yeah, I think that, you know, canonically speaking, Elian is actually the more developed character and yet people mostly remember Percival and I'm not gonna say why I think that is but I think you all know why I think that is I think there's something else though that I've just thought of as well as that thing um (laughs) and I think it's that if you think about Percival like we talked about it in the episode how Percival like I can create a whole character in my head for him based on like a couple of scenes where like for example he carries three kids at once or he you know is the one that's always trying to protect the little guy or he's the one that gets to carry Merlin because he's the strongest and I think maybe the reason why we find it easier to characterize Percival and Fix is because he basically is just a trope rather than a character Mm -hmm. like his whole thing is that he's strong and kind which is such a normal trope in like well at least western literature and western media like the kind of gentle giant like that we love you know and i think that because he kind of fits that stereotype we feel like we maybe then know who he could be even though we've never seen his character not really you know whereas elian like you said he he does have mystery to him, but he doesn't really have anything that makes him tropey um, because he, yeah, yeah, he's just kind of bland, but not tropey at all. Whereas Percival is bland, but tropey. So maybe the fact that he does have tropes attached to him, we can, you know, fandom loves tropes and Fick loves tropes. Yeah. So maybe that's what it is, you know? Yeah, could could definitely be a reason. Elwyn goes on to say, also Percival has more fan and presence thanks to being paired with Gwen a lot, so it affects future works too. Because, let's be honest, fanfic writers draw from fanon just as much as from canon, sometimes even more, and it's just easier to go with someone who has some fanon presence. And yeah, that's that's definitely true. And again, I'm not going to say why I think that Percival has more fanon presence than Elian, because you all know what I'm going to say here. Or why it's Percival who's being paired with Gwen when Percival has just as much, if not more, interaction with Elian. 
and Gwen has just as much, if not more, interaction with Elian or other characters. Like, yeah. it's not that Gwen and Percival interact more than Percival interacts with other characters or that Gwen interacts with other characters. It's just that we pick these two because, well, we all know why we pick these two, you know. And it's just, yeah, so that's... I get that you're, like, I get what you're saying, Eliwen, and I think you are right. A part of the reason why people keep coming back to Percival and Gwen as a couple, for example, is because it's such a fanon thing now. It's just, Per Wayne is just basically the the fanon side pairing to Merthyr and Gwensalot. You know, that's just that's just the three pairings that exist in Fanon now. <laughs> and if you write a story, you should you have these three pairings in them if you have more than one pairing yeah. in them. And it's just that's just how it is, and that's that's okay. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't be writing these, but yeah, it's not that Percival and Gwen have more interaction with each other than they have with other characters. And like I think I have said this in the episode as well, but I will just remind, you know, I'm not saying that the thing that we're not bringing up is not perfectly valid in this but i will also say that neither percival and elian nor Gwen and elian had those interactions in the finale where they are holding That's the true. other as they die that and i true, feel like elian at yeah. that point was already dead yeah that's true but i i mean i i think that actually I don't. I mean, I'd be very interested to see how much Per Wayne fic there was prior to the finale and how much exploded yeah. after that scene. Yeah. Because, you know, and also the reaction of the actors to those moments as well, who also ship it. And I think that is also very valid when it comes yeah. to what becomes... I, I was about to say that probably another big thing is that Owen and Tom in real life interact a lot more with each other on social media than they interact with, with the others. Like, they all interact as knights. Like, you see you see them interacting with Rupert, and you see them getting together with Adetomiva and everyone. But, like, uh, Owen and Tom keep working together on other projects as well, and they keep mentioning each other on Twitter or Instagram as well. So I think that this real-life friendship plays a lot into the canon shipping as well yeah and i think just the other actors joking about it just fuels the ship more like i don't know how how much it was at the time obviously there's that famous blooper which was so they kind of probably were aware that it was a bit gay but i think like especially now it's one of those things that you know the nights i mean when i was at um Birmingham MCM in March like Rupert and Alex made a joke about it like how they were like I think they someone asked them oh which character do you think should come back to life if there's just one character and I think Alex said Gwen and he was like you know because that Percival and Gwen there was something there or something like that and obviously everyone just went crazy and he was just like I know I know (laughs) it was just like (laughs) Like, you know, you guys. Um, so I think it's one of those things where, like, you know, if if the actors are playing up to Poane and they're not playing up to Percival and Eliane or, like, or anything else, then that's just, you know, I think, I don't think this is exactly what anyone was trying to say, but kind of piggybacking off of that idea of fanon, I think fanon not only means what people are writing, but I think it also can encompass the kind of meta of what 
the actors and the people involved talk about the ship as well or how they react and like you said momo who is actually interacting in real life mm. i mean the only reason at least i think i mean i'm i'm not sure I, I would say the majority of the reason why for example the sam and bucky ship in the mcu has has become quite popular is because of sebastian stan and anthony mackie's friendship not necessarily because in my opinion i don't think they have much chemistry romantically at all in the movies then i don't ship it but they have such strong chemistry as friends in real life and they spend so much time together that it kind of has made that ship so much more popular yeah. than it would have been yeah. so yeah i completely agree with you that 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 can be a factor as well yeah. also i just while we were talking checked on ao3 and obviously ao3 isn't the be all and end all especially for merlin fanfic of earlier years but just looking at AO3, there were 32 works posted before the finale aired. And the per Wayne tag on AO3 has 633 works now. <laughs> so, like you said, like that was your prediction, that there's uh, less fanfic of them pre-finale than there is post final. I mean, obviously, it's been five years. It's been yeah. almost six years, five and a half years now since since it ended. So, of course, there has been a lot of time to write about them now. But also on AO3, at least, there have only been 30-something works before the finale. Okay. Uh, to conclude Elewin's comment on this episode, she says... And I wouldn't put too much faith into the statistics of characters appearing in fix because not everyone uses that. I usually don't, especially not when their role is minor, because I feel like it's false advertising. I tend to not mention background side pairings for the same reason. Yeah, that's absolutely great, because I, for example, only tag for characters if they have several lines in the story or actually, you know, show up for more than, than just a brief scene if they have any actual impact on the story in some way and it's good when others use the tags the same but i agree that we can't actually gauge how many people are tagging like that because everyone has a different tagging policy mm -hmm. and tags therefore aren't an accurate depiction but it's still you know that is the only way for me like when people tag for them that is the only way for me to come up with a statistic where's the line like how much presence does a character have to have for it to count like obviously this is very very fuzzy and, and murky and not uh, a clear-cut science i never claimed that it would be we have to draw the line somewhere though yeah we have to draw the line somewhere but you know it's still you can conclude a little bit from it like how many people use them in in their stories Mm -hmm. Just by because a lot of people will tag for character appearances. And I think with tagging as well, I mean, I can't think of many instances where this might be a problem, but it could, I think, happen sometimes is that tagging could sometimes also denote a spoiler, which people maybe don't want. You know, I mean, if you're writing, um, I don't know, like a 
uh, a post a canon thick and you tag for Gwen, um, then I mean my interpretation of that would be that oh he comes back to life too, which you might not want to let the reader know if it's meant to be a surprise, you know? Yeah, I nice. know what you mean. All right, thank you for that comment. Moving on to the next one. The next one is a short one left by Vicky. And she said in reaction to our fandom recap episode, I'll interject and confirm the 10th anniversary convention in London did happen, but it seems it was a very small affair. You can only find a few posts about it on Twitter. I wasn't there, but all I know, there were at least a couple of cosplayers and people bid on a cardboard cutout of Bradley James. The people running it really didn't promote it a lot after getting into some Twitter drama. Not saying that's the reason, but the timing did coincide. And also didn't bother to answer questions on the Facebook page, which is no longer there. Nearer the event, when people were asking if it was still happening because they'd received no information. It's a shame because my understanding is the profits were going to the women's aid charity. Well, a shame. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for the update. I checked their website before posting the fandom recap episode because I wanted to add it to the show notes at least. But the website is gone and has been gone for at least half a year now. Yeah. I mean, I remember just seeing some random stuff about it before Coin a Lot. I remember planning on going to the meetup in Pierrefond and being like, "Oh, guys, I think this thing is happening in London. It's a shame that none of us will be there because we'll all be in France." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Vicky also commented on our Q&A session and she said when we were talking about what the hypothetical season six would have looked like, this is what Vicky says. You're a pair of amateurs. In series six, the story would have actually finally gotten going with King Leon's rule. It's canon. They even left a sign for it at Pierrefond. I know you've both seen the chameleon sign. <laughs> you are right. <laughs> and it's it's funny because that's my actual headcanon. Gwen married Leon to preserve the line of succession and they ruled together as benevolent monarchs. And yet, I did not bring this up when we were talking about <laughs> hypothetical season six because I was trying to be realistic about what the BBC would have actually done if they had done it. Well, I don't know. You say that, but it's like, okay, right. Again, I'm sorry. Like, we should basically just call Melissa and Roxanne goes on tangents about shows that are long off the air. Because <laughs> um, Robin Hood, which aired in 2006 to 2009, yes, I think. Um, uh, obviously, the whole big love story in that was Robin and Marion, which is kind of akin to the Arthur and Gwen thing. But also Robin Hood didn't have like a big epic gay thing going on. So that was also not the same. And spoiler alert, if you've not seen Robin Hood, she gets uh, killed in the finale of season two when they go off to the Holy Land to do this big mission thing. She gets killed by Guy of Gisborne and she dies in Robin's arms and they get married as she is dying. Like they say their vows and they exchange rings and then she dies. And it's very, very tragic and you know epic and all of that kind of thing and then you know by uh, season three was the last season I don't know if that's how they planned it but you would imagine that you know considering that and the fact that there was a big love thing and they got ma married and it was in the legends that you know that would be it for the love stuff for Robin they wouldn't do any more of that and then in season three he actually got not one but two love interests <laughs> um so Yes, uh, but yeah, like she was his one true love soulmate epic 
partner and then he still went on to have other partners in season three um even though her death completely destroyed him so i'm just kind of like i could maybe see gwen having a similar thing and you know she's had partners past you know she's had yeah. Lancelot and then she had Arthur so I don't think no, like, it would be out of the question that Leon would be allowed yeah. to be a for Gwen you know and and like in my head canon it's that you know they've been they've known each other since they were children they've they've become sort of friends they are familiar with each other and Gwen knows that she has to preserve the the line somehow and Leon is the one she trusts the most so at first it's a marriage of convenience but then over time, feelings grow and it becomes a marriage with love. <sighs> yes, you know, it's that's, like one of my favorite. That's basically how I <laughs> how I see this happening post season five. All right, moving on to the next comment, left once again by Elwyn on our episode review of To Kill the King. And in that episode, we were talking about how Merlin can sense the the sorcerer's stone. Because his magic senses were tingling or something. And Eliwen has this to say. I always assumed that Merlin feels magic pretty much all the time. Like another sense. Which would make him so used to it that he doesn't really think about it. The sacred places are more saturated with magic. So it probably just makes him more aware of the magic around him. It's kind of like with breathing. We don't really think about breathing. But when something changes. Less air, fresher air. It brings our attention to it. It also fits with his reactions to the sudden magic spikes, kind of like Yoda reacting to a disturbance in the Force. In this episode, it drags him awake. In 302, he reacts as if being hit when Morgana uses the staff to raise the dead, and Morgos is shown to feel it too. And the opening of the veil straight out decks him, and it decks Morgana too. That's an interesting thought for sure. I still argue that there probably were magical incidents where Merlin wasn't shown to have noticed anything and if your argument is that he only senses stronger than average magic i feel like there must have been other occasions where super strong magic was used and merlin wasn't seen to react to it i might be wrong yeah. though because i can't like think off the top of my head i mean i would assume like he doesn't really react to anything that cornelia segan does in season two and cornelia segan is supposed to to be the other mightiest sorcerer to have ever lived apart from Merlin at Morgana at Mordred <laughs> but yeah yeah um I'll be honest like I can't really remember I think though I quite like Elowen's theory though how he kind of just you know senses it all the time but it's not really anything super powerful and then it also kind of gets the writers out of the shithole they dug themselves into which is that they just forgot about it until it was convenient so (laughs) (laughs) i would say that one of the great aspects of this episode is the lack of neckerchief on merlin's neck in several scenes yeah (laughs) it's it's this is very important to me but but like on a scientific level you know like, mm-hmm. I just want to make sure that Merlin's neck is still there. Like, that it didn't yeah. fall off. That's that's you know? like with me and Arthur's chest hair. Like, you just I have sh- to make sure it's still there. Yeah, yeah, I just need to see it every once in a while to know that, yeah, it still exists. Yeah. He, didn't, he didn't accidentally wax it off or something. Then Elowen goes on to say, When it comes to Merlin killing Morgana in 212, 
I think he never meant to kill her. He took a huge risk that could have resulted in him killing her, but I think he hoped for more ghosts to show up and save her right from the start. And, like, that's a nice thought, but I don't believe it in the slightest. Like, there's no reason for Merlin to be that upset if he thought that Morgos would come to save her. Also, he has no idea where Morgos is at this point, and I think his hope is for Morgos to not show up because then they will all die. <laughs> so I don't think he was hoping for Morgos to be anywhere near them. And the whole point of the climax of that episode and why that, in my opinion, is one of the best scenes that Merlin has ever done is because it was so brutal and so uh ruthless that he yeah. had made a decision that pre I mean we've seen him chicken out on this time and time again and it's led to dire consequences and the truth is unfortunately that if Morgos hadn't shown up and he he'd let Morgana die like he probably should have I mean he did try to kill her then Arthur would never have died like that's probably you know the case at the end of the day so I think that that's why it was such an important scene. And yeah, I don't, I don't believe that Merlin would be looking that upset if he thought, oh, this isn't real. (laughs) (laughs) Cheat life. Yeah. These are my exact same thoughts. Yay. (laughs) And finally, I was contemplating why Morgana brought a dagger to her father's grave when she expected other people to kill Uther for her. Eliwen says, I'd say Morgana just carries one of those around just because she's Morgana. And honestly, I can see that. But I also think that she might have decided to arm herself in case she needed to help kill Uther. Which is interesting because I think that Morgana at that point in her life probably thought she could easily kill anyone. Like, she has killed people in in Ialdor when they were fighting the bandits. But I think this is the first time she was trying to kill someone she knew. And she surprised herself by doing it. Yeah. I really like the idea that she took it with her in case she had to help kill Uther. And then it kind of gets subverted that she saves his life. But I kind of just feel like in the Middle Ages, like people would probably just arm themselves just in general, surely. Right? Like... If they could, they would. Morgana always carry a dagger around then? Well, we don't. I mean, there is a reason Arthur gives her one for her birthday in, what is it, season three? Yeah. So, I suppose. But maybe it's just one of those things, it's like, you know, yeah, like in today's world, like, you know, I have plenty of necklaces. I don't need another necklace, but people might still buy me a necklace because it's a nice (laughs) gift to get, you know, like, so maybe that's kind of what it is. Like he got her what he thought was a nice dagger. And obviously it, it it wasn't (laughs) when you saw it. Um, But yeah, so I don't know. I feel like it doesn't, it, it never crossed my mind that, Oh, what's Morgana doing with a dagger? I, I guess like maybe not around the castle, but if she's going out where there could be bandits, people like i can i can like i could i could also see uther encouraging her to take one with her he could be like morgana you will be with me you will be under my protection but just in case take a dagger he's not getting any younger (laughs) (laughs) like i can totally see that uther giving her daggers every year <laughs> just so she has enough stuff to protect herself with and what he doesn't realize is he's kind of endangering himself <laughs> every yeah. year let's move on to the next comment then archd also left us a comment on the 
to kill the king review and apparently i went off on a tangent again where i'm just like analyzing how none of the merlin geography makes sense for actual Pierrefonds geography <laughs> and rgd commented that she loves that i look at the scenes differently now since i've been to Pierrefonds and you know i don't think anyone who watches merlin can visit the castle and then not see the show differently and just be like, wait a minute, that doesn't go there. <laughs> you know, so I just think that's that's what happens when you go to sets of the thing that you watch. Yeah, for sure. So we now have another long comment from Elowin, uh for our fandom recap episode. And we, again, we're just like splitting this up a bit. So she starts off by saying, I was around 23 when the fourth and fifth season aired. And I definitely didn't appreciate that it turned darker. If it aired now when I'm nearly 30, I would still not appreciate it. Again, like, I feel like this is a discussion I'm probably going to be more at, like, kind of in the zone to have when we get to season four and five, like, recaps kind of thing. But I just feel like I don't mind the serious tone in fact, rewatching The Darkest Hour, like part one and two, uh, in the, in the, in the last few months, I was just watching the commentary for it and stuff. It does, like, I think it works because, of course, like it has to mature. Like the show has to mature with its fans, otherwise it would have failed. And this is, I think, sometimes things can get stuck in a loop, whether it's content creators or media or films, when they don't mature with the fans and it just uh, fails and it dies. But my problem was not that it became scarier or more serious. It was that the like I just felt as though the stories they were trying to tell that were darker weren't compelling. The Darkest Hour was, I think, very, very compelling and i think it's one of the best storylines of season four i really really liked that but the villains that they i mean i think it's mostly a villain problem morgana became the main villain for seasons four and five morgana is not a good villain morgana is not a very interesting character by this point katie bless her sweet geeky heart is not the most accomplished actress and she had to carry a lot of weight on her shoulders in those final two seasons Agravain is a very out of nowhere villain that makes no sense when you actually think about it <laughs> and I just I think those are the things that bother me more and I think by the end of the show what ended up happening was that even though from like a storytelling perspective and from a growth perspective yes okay it makes sense that the show turned in a slightly more serious tone but when you then look back at season one, it does feel like a massive shift. Like, I think that's what it is. It's just the contrast. It's not a 10, 20 season show. It's five. And I think that between seasons three and four, there was quite a big jump. I think the kind of storytelling that they were trying to do was a very big jump. And don't get me wrong, the seasons one, two and three stuff where it's like, goblins and trolls <laughs> also isn't particularly good storytelling, but to be honest with you, at least it was more entertaining. And I think that's what it is. I complain about the stupid comedy stuff a lot. But, you know, we always have a really fun time discussing it. Whereas I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll see how like how much fun we have discussing seasons four and five. But what do you think, Momo, about the whole tone thing about four and five? I don't really have an opinion yet because, I mean, I know that 
tonally speaking, seasons four and five did go in a more serious direction than seasons one, two, three were. But I, like, I'm not bothered by it personally. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't matter to me. I think that you are right, Rox, and when you say that, you know, just because the the plot turned more serious, that doesn't automatically make it more interesting. And that that is probably a big issue that seasons four and five have. But I really don't have anything else to add. Um. So, Ellen goes on to say, Colin is definitely breathtakingly attractive in person. I was lucky enough to get his signature after Gloria one evening, which meant standing very close to him for a few blissful seconds and my mind completely blanked. I think I was the one that mentioned this. I was just like, Colin is just really handsome in person. <laughs> I mean, he's just handsome in general, but in person, he's just. <sighs> and I like it's really interesting now when I'm older, like obviously when you're 17, you're just like, oh, my God, my fave. But now I find when I meet people and there are exceptions, like where I just kind of lose the ability to. <laughs> to you know just anything (laughs) i'm just Mm -hmm. um anyway um like on the whole when i meet actors now and i like have been doing more cons this year than i've done probably in the last like decade (laughs) um i find that i actually just kind of want to talk to them and just kind of get a get a grasp of who they are like I'm really interested in people so now if I met Colin I probably would be like god I'd really love to have a beer with you and just to like see what you're actually like because obviously people like him especially who are so kind of I mean again I mean we really don't know what he's like because he's very guarded you know especially in uh for the for the public eye oh I would really love to have an opportunity to like if this, you know, would ever be possible, of course, like if you bump into famous people in the street or whatever, just to stand and have a and just have a conversation and just find out more about what they're like, see their body language when they're kind of at ease and hear the pitch of their voice and, you know, see what they're really like. Because I think that it's very easy yeah, to kind of get swept up in that. Oh, my God, like they're my favorite. But they're just people you know what I mean like they're just people and it's very easy I think to get super excited and stuff which I'm still guilty of that today even though I'm much better around famous people now than I used to be like I said my my first time meeting Colin was (laughs) oh dear (laughs) we won't go there so Elowin carries on with her comment saying My experience with the Merlin fandom is that it's an incredibly nice place to be in, very open and inviting to new members, very joyful and inclusive, but somehow that never felt exactly right for the Arwen part of the fandom. Maybe it's because part of the Arwen shippers are people who only ship canon ships and go about it with a certain level of superiority, aka my ship is canon, kind of thing. While when you ship something that isn't canon, no matter how much coding and innuendos can be found in the source material, you're kind of used to ship and let ship rule. There are rude people there, of course, but I haven't encountered many in the Merlin fandom. Yeah, I mean, I think there's another comment coming up in a sec that kind of goes into this. Yeah, it goes into a similar thing. So we just lump them together. Let's just read what Marky has to say, and this is a bit of a of a longer comment maybe you read it and if you want to interject something then you can just cool okay so this is what marky had to say on the same episode about the same kind of topic 
These are my two cents on the whole. Everything you consume has to be squeaky clean thing that you addressed in the fandom recap. It's definitely a rising trend. In the Merlin fandom, it's just simmering. It hasn't exploded yet, and hopefully it never will compared to the others. And this is me interjecting here just to kind of break it up a bit. Yeah, I agree. Merlin, even though we do complain about it, like, look, every fandom has its cockroaches. Like, it does, of course. But I, I and, and I haven't been in many fandoms, but having been in the Glee fandom, which, in my opinion, was a lot more toxic than Merlin ever has been, um, especially when it comes to shipping and stuff. Like, yeah. It's not it's not that bad. Of course, Glee and other fandoms that I've personally been in didn't have uh, a fandom OTP necessarily. It wasn't like it is here. Maybe if I had been in like the Supernatural fandom, like maybe that would be a different story. Um, I don't think even you can really call like Stucky like a fandom OTP because you have a lot of people that ship Steve and Tony and then you have a bunch of other people that ship other big ships and it's just not the same as Merlin. So I can see how that is different. But I would agree, Merlin, in my opinion, is still kind of the golden sunshine child of fandom life. <laughs> I don't know if you would agree with that, Momo, but it's not as bad as others, surely. That's true. It's not as bad as yeah. others. But just saying something. <laughs> um, this is Marky again. Personally, I only had very pleasant and positive experiences in the Merlin fandom and always felt very welcome. However, if we're talking about other fandoms, it's hysterical. I mean, there are people who hate stuff and are actively surfing the tags dedicated to such things just to start the phantomatic discourse for the sake of it. Got to commend their tenacity into hating something they don't care about, especially those who waste their time with overwinded essays on why we should hate something. It's like they can't give value to things they like without comparing them to others they put effort into hating. I completely agree with this again. I mentioned Glee, much worse fandom than Merlin. What I will say, though, is that I think there's a difference hating on things in a way. Okay. I've written essays about things that I don't like. Like I came back from Endgame and wrote like just a spontaneous 1300 word post that I didn't mean to. It just happened on why I didn't like the ending. But I didn't actively go around trying to send it into people's anons. Like I, like I didn't tag for, I don't think I even tagged it for ships necessarily that were like, but I wasn't really bashing anything in the actual comment either. I think it's all about what you're what you're actually criticizing, how you're doing it and about being respectful. If you're just like what Marky said, actively surfing tags for things you don't like just to rile, rile yourself up. That's just a bit self-destructive and it's pointless. Like I used to sometimes do that when I was a, like a teenager and didn't know better. <laughs> and now I'm like, well, why am I going to like why? Like things that I don't like exist and I can just do the sensible thing and ignore them and focus on the things that do bring me happiness but when it comes to like hating things like yeah i can hate the ending of something or i can hate this ship and to be honest with you you are allowed to write stuff in my opinion if it makes you feel better like it made me feel better to write that post about endgame because it made me, it helped me process my thoughts i was like no these are valid reasons why I feel I dislike this. And I posted it and that was kind of the end of it. And then you can talk about things obviously in private with people if you want to get more into it. I don't think there's anything wrong with publicly saying that you dislike something. Hell, if there is, then I'm going to hell for constantly discussing the Disney live action remakes <laughs> because boy, do I mention those a lot on Twitter. I think it's just as long as you're not attacking anyone personally. Marky goes on to say, maybe it's because of the main 
demographic and the specific product I'm thinking about caters to, i.e. teenagers. The amount of purity wank going on in that fandom is horrific, but we can't boil everything down to that. These people need to understand that rainbows and roses are not a thing and there's no need for purity in the content you consume to enjoy it. Yeah, I th- like I think with the whole rainbows and roses thing, look, I get it. I get that you want things to be unproblematic and you want things to be good. And, and I mean, I don't know what Marky means by this is rainbows and roses in the sense that the content you consume shouldn't be upsetting or if what she means by rainbows and roses is that your content and your fandom shouldn't be problematic look if you are in a fandom especially if you're in a fandom that was airing in 2008 your content is going to be problematic okay and i think this whole purity wank thing is a is a wider societal issue where people are not allowed to make mistakes and people are not allowed to say shitty things and then make up and learn from saying shitty things that's really dangerous like just in general it's dangerous and it's how people who actually do believe problematic things end up having validity and a voice and that is just really really bad again i'm not really sure if she's going for the problematic route or for the my show can't have any angst in it route um but momo i think has some thoughts on that so i'm sure she'll bounce off me any second (laughs) um yeah, my only thought is I was thinking of this whole this comes back to to the entire purity culture and where you mentioned Marky that it's, you know, and and you said this yourself, Rob, so it's like it's likely that this is especially teenagers who want to be like, well, this is not something that we should be reading, so you should not be writing it and then who go and actively look for things that, you know, aren't good for them in their opinion and then attack people for creating these things in the in the first place and i'm just this is this has reached a really ridiculous kind of scope now like especially i see it especially on tumblr where younger people like let's say 18 and younger people on tumblr are trying to police other people's fandom experiences and like especially fandom experiences of people who are older than them who have the right to write whatever the fuck they want and it's just this is very this is a very concerning trend that is emerging in my opinion where just people really think that they have the right to tell other people what they are allowed to to write in terms of king or not king or characterization and everything and i just it made me think of this story which i can't find right now but i will link it in the show notes because i will find it again in time for posting this uh which is called something like the only unproblematic fanfic uh it's on ao3 it got like millions of of comments and hits and kudos within the first hours of being posted and it's like a it's a sherlock Holmes, John Watson, BBC Sherlock-based fanfic. It's it's very short. It's just basically Sherlock and John talking to each other and then admitting that they're attracted to each other. And then one of them is like, oh no, but I am teenager coded with my likes of these things. And oh no, does this make you a pedophile now? And then Lestrade comes in and tries to arrest them. And it's just, it's so ridiculous. But it is basically a really 
good satirical commentary on this kind of purity culture that is happening right now in a lot of fandoms and across fandoms and it's just it's just hilarious and this is what i what popped into my mind with like you know the amount of purity wank going on in the fandom marky's end of the comment is anti this anti that people complaining their ship isn't as popular as others and getting all bitchy about it can't you just shut up and enjoy the things you like can't you just produce content for your ship instead of whining because others don't ship it or worse demanding from them to provide it for you and marky is very right that we that no one has the right for uh, to to demand that others cater to their interests that is very correct this is something we've said on on this podcast several times already that if you want specific content to exist you have to make it yourself because no one else is responsible for making it for you however lately i can sort of see where the arwen shippers are coming from i'm not saying i agree with their approach to demand that other people start writing for their ship like I said, that's not other people's responsibility. And I also don't agree that, you know, previously established spaces for other ships be turned into spaces for their ship. Like when they asked Rox and me to turn Cornulot into a more general Merlin convention. No, that's not what Cornulot was created for. That is not what Cornulot was. Cornulot is a Merthyr convention and should always be a Merthyr convention. You know, but as someone, and I'm talking about myself now, who's really not actively shipping Merthyr these days, it is starting to get on my nerves how large fests and exchanges are predominantly marketing towards Merthyr fans, just because they're the largest demographic in the fandom. There's also the thing where I track the Merwain tag on Tumblr, and first of all, it gets maybe two or three posts a week when things are busy and that's okay because it's a small ship and i know that there's not going to be a lot of productivity and a lot of activity in that in that tag what is annoying though is that half of these posts are then tagged as merthyr as well and aren't even about the merwain ship they are about merthyr and only mention merwain in some other context and now imagine being a person who only ships Merwain or any of the other smaller ships and you only get a handful of posts in your tag in a week and you're okay with that because you know you're in a niche part of the fandom but then half of these posts aren't even for you that really is frustrating and I've only been observing this for half a year imagine being in this situation for several years and obviously this shouldn't turn into anti-culture like i don't go to mirtha fans and tell them hey stop producing mirtha stuff because you're you're encroaching on my merwain space with your mirtha stuff like i don't go to people and tell them to stop doing what they love you know because i'm not that i'm not that person i recognize that other people ship other things and i don't ship that thing or i don't ship it as much as i used to or i ship other things as well you know and I don't actively anti-ship Merthyr now because it's not the ship's fault that some people spam the Merwain tag with Merthyr stuff. All I'm saying is that I understand where some of that frustration comes from. And even when you're trying to stay in your corner of fandom, 
you get sucked into the other ships just because the other part is so big and sprawling that it reaches all the way over to where you're sitting and peacefully try to ignore the thing and just work on your stuff but because the other the like Merthyr in this case because Merthyr is so big and so all-encompassing you can't get around it even when you try to avoid it and then of course you see how much it encroaches on your space and that is frustrating that is really frustrating i can, like i think it's really wrong if people are just outright like tagging for things that aren't really relevant <laughs> like i think that's just yeah that's just stupid like the reason we have tags is so people can either avoid or find the things that they want to avoid or find like that's just ridiculous I think like when it comes to fests and things, I think if I mean, I don't really participate in fests, so I can't really speak to how they're marketed. But I, I trust what you know, you're saying if they are like being outright marketed towards like mostly murder shippers, I like I do think that that is wrong. But on the other hand, if it's just the case that they're marketed as just what the way that they are, which is just a fest for anyone. And it just so happens that either all or mostly Mirtha shippers sign up. I think that, that we just have a classic case of what we've already spoken about in the yeah. fandom recap, which yeah, is no, that... I, that that's totally fine. Like, I, yeah, I know that more Mirtha people will sign up for this than there will be other shippers. I know this. But the thing is, the way I've seen larger fests marketed is that you will have one promo post that is tagged with some of the smaller ships. You will have a second promo post tagged with other of with the rest of the smaller ships but the majority of the promo posts will be tagged mostly with the big ships especially Merthyr in this case they like they will not make any effort to promote to the smaller ships more often but is there maybe an argument i mean but i'm just thinking from a logical point of view and i don't know if this is what they're thinking but if what you're saying is true that for example in merwain which is like a small ship but it's one of the more popular ships in the fandom only gets say two or three posts a week in the in the Merwain tag because you track it so you know that and then imagine smaller ships that maybe get even less than that per week like in the tag and then you think of Mirtha that gets probably many many more posts a week in the tag and I guess if you're promoting something I guess in my head it, it makes sense to tag doubly or triply more for a tag that's more saturated so that people will actually see it yeah but because it's more likely to get lost as opposed to if you just promote it once or twice in a tag that's small people will find it very soon because there's not a lot of content but the thing is that a lot of the people don't even use the track tags like i use the track tags Uh, a lot of people like i use the track tags this way because that's what I'm used to from many, many, many years of Tumblr when track tracking tags was actually regularly possible. Like you can't actually track tags this way on Tumblr anymore unless you have an extension installed like I do. The only right. way to track something is to track a search and a search will adhere to the to the algorithm and it will put the most popular posts at the beginning. And mm. it will also put popular posts in the middle of your timeline. So things that are you know, more popular that get more notes or that are posted more often will show up in your search or will show up on your dashboard while Mm -hmm. other things will just get lost 
the way Tumblr is structured these days, the way Tumblr works these days. If you go on Tumblr, the search bar at the bottom left, uh, at the top left corner, it is a search bar for a search, a keyword search, not a tag search. You have to manually type in the URL, like change the URL to make it actually a tag search. Right. At a lot of people, I can imagine, don't know that mm-hmm. or don't do that because it's too much effort. And so that's where I see the problem is that it just, I mean, Tumblr is a clusterfuck anyway, let's be real. Uh, so promoting anything on Tumblr is a lot of hit and miss. But mm-hmm. it's just, I see that even announcements of, 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 of fests, you know, when they just announce, you know, writers check in or this check in or works are due or whatever they often make one post and they tag it with general merlin tags and maybe a ship or two and that's Mm -hmm. it they won't make these the same posts with different with different ship tags because they assume that most people writing for them are merthor or they assume that everyone is following them their tumblr which is not super unreasonable, but also you can't expect people to do that. You know, people will trust that you, you know, that you check for it mm-hmm. if they're looking for the tags. I mean, just to kind of slowly bring it back to Elowen and Marky's comment, is that I think what we have, particularly in the Arwen fandom, where where there might be some animosity, is this. Look, I remember when Arwen, from what, from from my experience of it anyway, and I don't have any statistics to back me up on this, was a very popular ship at the time. In fact, I had a lot of friends in the fandom who OTP'd for Arwen, who vidded for Arwen. A lot of people that were vidding were were also vidding that ship. It was not difficult to find people. There were plenty of tumblers, and obviously we know there was a live journal community. And um, just in general, I think it was one of the one of the main ships of course nothing you know to the extent of Mirtha but it was one of the main uh ships and look I can understand that it's frustrating that now your ship is much smaller like that sucks but at the end of the day it's also not something that any of us can control you know a lot of people that shipped Arwen have moved on to other fandoms or have just stopped being in fandom altogether and perhaps a lot of people that shipped Darwin at the time and were blogging about it just you know as soon as Mer- as soon as Merlin ended um either their interest in the Arwen ship waned or they realized or, or they also shipped Mirtha at the time and they decided to then start OTPing for Mirtha because it was they just either preferred it or because of the finale or because there was more content I don't know Whatever the case, yes, Arwen has become a much smaller ship in recent years. But what Elowen and what Marky, I think, are saying is that, you know, like, for example, you know, you, Momo, you ship smaller ships. But like we've said, you don't have this attitude of provide for me, you know, and it's not, you know, hashtag not all Arwen shippers. (laughs) It's like not all Arwen shippers do this. I'm sure there are many that are, you know, lovely people. The ones we had on the podcast, lovely people would never dream of doing this, I'm sure. But our experiences, mine and Momo's experiences, direct experiences with some Arwen shippers have just given us a bad taste in our mouth because we're like, well, we have had no negative experiences with any other ship in this fandom but this one. 
I feel like that's not a coincidence. And even like we said of the experience we had where it was insinuated that maybe coin a lot should become a general convention that would encompass all the ships, even though it was already paid for and prizes had been bought and everything was ready, you know, even if we did want to do that, which we didn't. Um, I just think that I don't know how much more we can beat this horse to death, which is, you know, just that unfortunately that's not the way that life works and of course fests and anything of that sort should like mama said you know you should make sure that you're reaching all the people that the fest is um meant to uh to cater for like you absolutely should do that and if people aren't doing that then we would encourage people to please make sure you're marketing stuff to everyone um but i just think that it's kind of getting to a point now where there are certain shippers that almost want to make people feel bad for being a part of a popular ship which i just don't really understand that because it's not going to make it like popularity is the one thing in the world that i think you we have no control over it doesn't matter how good something is it doesn't matter how excellent or unproblematic or whatever a movie or a book or a ship or a food or anything is you cannot control or gauge popularity sometimes things will just happen i don't know what else we can really say about that you know i mean again not all our shippers it's just the few that we've had the unpleasant experiences with i'm sure they're lovely people in their real lives but just their their interactions with us based on their shipping preferences i just think that i know it's shit when your ship and your fandom gets smaller i've had the same experience in glee glee is now a much smaller fandom a lot less fic being written and there are a lot of people that I used to follow on Tumblr that don't follow Glee anymore and don't follow Clay and it sucks it really feels like you're you know losing a part of your fandom history and it feels like you're losing a part of what of what you really loved but then it's kind of you know take that opportunity to try and just you know make your corner of the fandom better and just make sure that you're as positive as you can be and make sure that you're making as much stuff as you can you know and really enjoy it for what it is and you know maybe if your ship is smaller now you know you have more chances to interact with other shippers and other fans because it's not as saturated you know try and find the positives in that is the only advice i can really give i mean i don't know if momo has anything to add <laughs> nope the only thing I have to add is that I would like to stop talking about this topic now forever. <laughs> well, we won't have any reason to bring it up again. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, you know, we've said everything there is for us to say about this. And yeah, we've said our piece in the fan recap. We've said it again now. And I think that we are going to let the topic lie from now on, unless new developments come up that we feel the need to discuss but i think that you know you are still everyone is still free to comment on it to give us their thoughts on it we will be thrilled to have your thoughts on it but we will not be talking about this on a podcast again unless something changes yeah i think it's actually just mostly just for airtime you know because like we said we don't really like to cover things that we've already discussed too much so yeah yeah Awesome. Um, so the next comment that we have is from uh, Angel Rose. Um, 
and it was on our episode for for Colin Morgan and uh this user just wanted us to clarify what TM meant because we use the word TM I use the word TM quite a lot in my in my day to day vernacular so if Momo can give a very uh lovely definition of that I'm sure that they'd be very very grateful I mean, it should have been you who gives the definition, but I've already written it out. You've already written it, so I feel like, you know, it's in blue. It should be you. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So TM stands for trademark, which in turn means that something is a recognized design, behavior, or expression that identifies a brand, individual, or character. When we use it in fandom context, for example, here on Merlison, we just mean that it's very distinct or common behavior or expression of that person or that trope or whatever else we apply it to. And also, just in general, like if you hear people saying something like, you know, uh, straight white guy TM, like what they mean by adding the TM is they're talking about like the negative version of what that can mean. So like, it's okay to be a straight white guy. But like, if you're a straight white guy TM, then you're probably like, um, like, showing your privilege and not really caring about minorities and basically just doing everything you can to be a bit of a dick (laughs) like that's kind of the idea behind the tm yes not all the time but like just like for example in that case so yeah uh, yeah. it depends on tone and context and it's not something you can easily explain for every situation in just one definition it has to depend a little bit on on the circumstances which i get for some people is hard to to read like tone or or circumstances but yeah it's yeah (laughs) that's what it is okay lao then commented also on our episode review of la mort d'arture what i'm what am i saying also this is the first time someone's uh, commenting on (laughs) la mort d'arture we had a lot of to kill the king comments now but we're moving on to the finale of the season one and lao said I have a theory for the scene with Gwen in Arthur's chambers. I think Morgana wanted to be with Arthur, but Uther didn't allow it. Either because the lady can't be alone with the prince, or because Uther doesn't want them to be too close. So instead of going to Arthur by herself, she at least sends Gwen. Gwen is her most trusted friend, and I could imagine she felt comforted by the idea of her friend looking after Arthur. Arthur does this too. When Gwen got kidnapped and Morgana said she didn't come to work in the morning, Arthur knew he couldn't go looking for her, so he sends Merlin instead. Alright, Lau, you know I love you, and I hate to burst your bubble, but A. Morgana has been alone with Arthur in his chambers plenty of times before, like when they were both awake and not dying, for example. B. It's still no more appropriate for Gwen to be alone with Arthur than it would be for Morgana if we're talking historical accuracy here. And finally, Uther of season one didn't have any problem with Morgana and Arthur being close because Uther of season one didn't know yet that Morgana is his daughter. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I just... Gwen is in Arthur's chambers because the writers want to establish this relationship. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. It That's sucks, it. and it's there. We had another short comment from Angel Rose on our Canon Fix episode, which brings us back to tagging on AO3. Because Angel Rose says, AO3 tags are so complex and scary. Not sure I'll ever dare post there. Is there a how-to guide anywhere? Uh, Angel, my, my advice is you can probably find help on the AO3 page itself. If you go look into the frequently asked questions section, 
Tumblr also has some posts about it floating around if you search for AO3 on it. And otherwise, Google is your friend. <laughs> that is that is the best advice I can I can give you. Just look at other figs, look how they tag their things. You know, if you have questions about specific fanfics, how to tag for them, maybe someone can give you advice on a case by case basis until you've you know figured out how to do it. Just talk to other people, look at other figs, and maybe ask Google. I'm sure you'll figure it out. It's really not that scary. I know we talk a lot about. I mean, I know I talk a lot about how I wish people would tag correctly, but honestly, everyone has a different tagging policy and there is uh, officially no wrong way to do it. Just because I might think something isn't tagged correctly doesn't mean you're actually wrong for tagging it this way. You know, you tag how you want to tag and that's okay. Okay, we've had a comment from, I'm assuming it's pronounced... Thea Fanny, I hope that's correct, who commented on our season one recap and they said, I just thought about how cool it would have been if Moment of Truth was a two-part finale where what happened happened and then in the next episode Arthur has to deal with the consequences of literally almost claiming a village that belongs to another kingdom. This could have led to Uther's strong disapproval, a war, and probably guilt from Arthur, which in turn could explain why he is hesitant to show affection for Merlin in season 2, because his affection for Merlin started the war in the first place. I just feel like this would justify the low stakes of the episode, and if they wanted to have Merlin almost reveal his magic, it would fit because it's the end of the season. Yeah. I just wanted to share this because that sounds great. To me that sounds very I think though, like... I don't know. I like the idea that, oh, then Arthur would have to be acting more cold towards Merlin. Um, but in my kind of ideal version of the show anyway, Arthur should be acting cold towards Merlin until the end of season two anyway. Like that's kind of my, my ideal turn of events where Merlin falls for Arthur in season one and then Arthur falls for Merlin in season two. And then season three is the first season where they're really kind of on the same page with each other and like respect and emotion and investment. Uh, so I kind of I like that. I don't know. Look, I'll be honest with you. I don't think anything can save Moment of Truth for me except for a complete rewrite. So I like the idea, but I don't know how it would like logically work in the format that they had the show in but i think it's a really cool idea and it would actually have that thing that i've always wanted from merlin which is you know the more continuous storytelling of like you know oh we actually did (laughs) things last week remember those (laughs) who's lancelot (laughs) oh i just thought of something what if this war that is mentioned in the comment is what gets Arthur injured for Le <gasps> In Le yeah. So yeah. you could still have this be in season one. Like you could have Moment of Truth be at 11 and 12. But how would how would Nimue be at fault for that? I mean, she was never at fault in the first place. She, that's true. I, I just remember that she didn't send the questing beast. The questing beast just arrived. Yeah. They could have kept the questing beast for something else could have saved it. I mean the I mean what I'm guessing could work you know because obviously Morgos had like Senred's like ear like in season three so maybe you could have a plot point where um 
Senra doesn't find out about Arthur invading his kingdom, but Nimue tells him. Like, because then she knows it will start a war. Right. So that could be hmm. uh, interesting. I don't know. Gives her something else to do, some more people to interact with. Makes her interesting. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. Yeah. An interesting Nimue, imagine that. Okay, uh, so we have another comment. Uh, it was on our Arthur Returns fic episode from Casual Corgi, and they said, We begin again, which I think is meant to be like the cycle of the year, we begin again, is my damn canon for what happened at the end of the series. Love it, and always love to hear others bringing it up. It's so well written and well done. It gave so much closure, and yes, the sequel is delightful as well. I have my fingers crossed the author writes a third part, but I'm perfectly pleased with what currently exists in regard to the series. And I've just had to mention it because since that episode aired, I have read like the cycle of the year we begin again. And I just agree. It's just perfect. <laughs> it's just like uh, <laughs> everything, everything. I actually like the sequel less than I like the original. I think it's one of those things where the sequel is really great. But the original was just like it had that angst getting together like, oh, my God. And I just love the fact that like. Merlin, especially in the beginning, is just it's so full of grief and his whole thing of where he talks to himself, he's kind of going a little bit, you know, and he also when Arthur comes back, he's like, oh, the version of you I had in my head was so much nicer than the version that's really there. And time has kind of made you nicer in my head than what you are because it's been a thousand years. And of course, you know, that's the way I see you in my head now. Oh, that's. That's such a good metaphor for what Fennon has done to Kenan Arthur. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> I never realized that before, but that is basically what Fennon has done to Kenan Arthur. And also Kenan Merlin. Like every like a lot of fix turn Merlin into this wilting flower, super shy or, you know, compassionate, nice person when Merlin is actually ruthless yeah. <laughs> and not shy at all well casual quirky also had additional figure X for this episode and we'll link to their comment in our show notes so you'll have more fixed to read even more fixed to read then we have another comment from Elwyn. <laughs> um, a very long one because it was in our colin episode and Elwyn, as we already know has many feelings about yeah. Colin. So she starts off by saying, Colin is known for not being a fan of celebrity culture and he's really meticulous about not becoming a part of it, which I think is really amazing because a lot of people are all talk but then do the same thing that they criticise. And I agree, I think he's very, very smart and I think he'll go a long way in doing what he's doing. <laughs> he's very, very smart to keep away from all of it. Though I think from us fans, we wish he was a little bit more present on social media because... That would be amazing. But I completely respect the fact that he's just not interested in it. She goes on to say, I love the little snippets of Colin's personality shining through during behind the scenes, bloopers, interviews and photo shoots. We know about his dark sense of humor from others, but he's also delightfully cheeky and can do very spontaneous stuff when you least expect it. But all of that happens only when he's feeling really comfortable and safe, which, again, is just so relatable for me. And I feel like it's so weird that I literally said that like what half an hour ago. <laughs> like I was like, oh, like if I ever talked to Colin, like I would love to kind of get to know him. But also I can see that it's not all this like shy exterior. Like he like he is a like got his own quirks and things, which I really love. And I agree. I, I even fall into that trap a lot of the time where I'm like, oh, Colin is just so like subdued and like, you know, but then I'm like, no, he's the guy that like 
you know, was in the video diaries making the most awful jokes, like <laughs> terrible jokes. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, yeah, I need to remind myself of that, like on a regular basis, I think, because I often forget that actually it's there's a reason why Bradley likes him. And it's because he's really, really like interesting underneath all of that hair. You know, <laughs> um, then she goes on to say. But while he's introverted, he's definitely not shy. I'd say that he's mainly very careful and guarded in situations that are not completely comfortable for him. But otherwise, I always remember that amazingly descriptive Tumblr post where someone who wasn't even a fan of his describes meeting 2012 buff Colin at Comic-Con and nearly swooning and Colin winking at her. If that's true, I'm just going to die right here. <laughs> because just Colin winking at anyone is just... It's just, it's just, it's just, it's just very interesting to me. I don't know. I find people like Colin really interesting because actors that are really extroverted are just, you know, like they're really entertaining to keep track of. But Colin it is a bit of a mystery. Like you don't really know what he's like, and I think that's really cool. Do Do you want me to go on because the next ones are go my for it. mostly? You skip Tempest, but I won't. While I still don't entirely understand what was happening there because Shakespearean English is a challenge and I was too lazy to read the whole play in Czech translation, I really enjoyed watching Colin parkour around the stage and being ethereal and deliciously buff in that tight costume. I think we did talk about the play and the recording, but I don't remember how much of it made it into it, the episode. I don't remember. I do remember talking about how I had gone to London that summer when the play was on. And I had gone to the Globe to watch Shakespeare, but not The Tempest. I went to see Much Ado About Nothing and completely blanked on the fact that The Tempest had Colin and also Roger Ellum. And also, if I had remembered, I probably would have gone for Roger Ellum. Rather yeah, than Colin. <laughs> I remember cutting that little bit out, but I'm sure I would have included the bit about Tempest. But it, I mean, maybe that was... Uh mistake on my part but i was sure that i kept it in there and yeah we did or maybe we because we mentioned that we then forgot to talk about the actual play <laughs> that's entirely possible i mean colin was amazing in it and and Elwyn is right that he was very ethereal in his in his role again colin has the ability to just disappear into his character and you can see that on stage as well in in this production definitely okay then Elwyn speaks about humans, a TV show. The parallels between real life and the world building of the show are rather depressing, but there's some hope there in between all the darkness, even if just a tiny bit. Again, I don't think this made it into the final cut, but the ending of that show was a bit meh. <laughs> like very Deus Ex Machina and like, in my opinion, they completely destroyed the Matty Leo ship after making it canon like they just they made it canon and then destroyed it and I'm just why do shows keep on doing that like why I don't get it and then Ellie says the living and the dead is just so amazing the scenery the costumes the plot Colin's whole look I spent half of the first episode making inhuman noises because of his perfection while a friend of mine patted me on the back in sympathy it was the first time she admitted that he's not a tiny baby anymore. The writer for the show talked about what would be in season 2 when it was clear that renewal would not happen, and I'm almost glad that season 2 didn't get filmed because it would most likely end up being really dark and depressing with no happy ending in sight. I clearly haven't been reading the right things or watching the right videos because I never heard of 
this being revealed, but also I will say I did not go looking for the information. I will have to go look for it now because I'd be super interested in hearing what season two was going to include because it does end on a sort of cliffhanger. So, you know, I really need to check that out. And then Eliwen talks about the play Gloria. Gloria was my first play that I got to see in London and it definitely did set the bar high. It was a really great production. Colin's performance was obviously stellar and when he landed on the stage right in front of me, I got a front row ticket for my first viewing, I swear my heart stopped and then went into full overdrive. I remember I sat there in stunned silence for a few seconds when the curtain fell and then just said, fuck, and someone answered, yeah. I liked theatre before I went, but that one night made me fall in love with it really hard. I just love how much Eloin loves Colin. <laughs> it makes me so just... happy. <laughs> just the thought of her, like, ah, when he landed in front it's... of her. It's <laughs> so sweet. For me, it's a little bit funny that I completely blanked on the fact that I had seen Colin in person on stage when Rox and I were talking about how, according to her and pretty much everyone else, Colin appeared more handsome in person than in pictures. And I said that I had never seen him in person. But of course I have seen him in person in this play. But it's not really as um, him. Like he's like I don't think he's very attractive in um All My Sons, for example. But like Well, that's because his hair is yeah, that, so I'm sure. in Gloria his hair is all, you know, fluffy and Oh, okay. Nice. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I do find him handsome when I find him handsome. And otherwise he looks the same to me. So Ellen goes on to say, Colin is definitely quite different on stage and in front of a camera. His movie slash TV show acting is more civil because that's what that platform needs. But when he gets on stage, wow, he oozes charisma and energy. And when I first read this talk back, I hadn't seen him on stage, but now I've seen the live broadcast of All My Sons, so I kind of have a bit more insight, but obviously I wasn't there in person. Um, I mean, this is just my kind of five cents. I've kind of, I think, grown into my acceptance that I don't really like stage acting. <laughs> I've kind of accepted that about myself and I've been denying that about myself for years. <laughs> I love musicals and, and I love theatricality, um, but I don't think theatre is for me and I don't think stage acting is for me. And that might be my experience when I was trying to work with actors who were more trained with the stage way of things and trying to get them to calm the fuck down was really a struggle. <laughs> Just being like, please, the camera is right in front of your face. <laughs> um, so I prefer his understated acting. And obviously I love the fact that he can do both because a lot of stage actors find it very difficult to, to translate that onto screen. And Colin, in my opinion, has incredible subtlety in Merlin it's I mean it's really one of the only things I've seen him in that was going on for so long um that doesn't like that's not to say that his acting isn't good on stage I thought he was really good in All My Sons I just I find the over-the-topness that that platform needs of course it needs that I find it infuriating personally but I agree that that is a minority opinion I know many people who love theatre and you know love that aspect of it um i just prefer the subtlety personally but that's just me i don't know if momo has an opinion on that one way or the other i only have an opinion on uh colin in like to add to colin in all my sons i thought he was really good throughout the play except at the end and this is a 
tiny spoiler, I suppose. At the end, he starts crying. And the crying sounds terrible. It sounds super fake. And I know Colin can do better. I really and liked that, just... actually. But I liked it. Really? Well, no. I liked it because it didn't sound like he was crying to me. I just felt felt that... I mean, it was a very awkward sound to listen to. And that's why I liked it, because it was that kind of embarrassing, like, heaving kind of sound that, like, he, it, it felt like it just came from somewhere deep. Like, it wasn't really crying. It wasn't really shouting. It was a weird, like, in-between thing that, and it made me uncomfortable watching it, which is good. Like, I think it was good that it did that. And, like, but, but I can understand why it Yeah, it felt. made... It didn't make me uncomfortable, it just made me cringe really hard because I was like, this sounds, this sound, to me it sounded super fake and I just, that completely threw me off because Colin has never sounded fake to me when playing a role, ever. So, that was weird. Yeah, um, Elowen goes on to say, when he's the centre of attention, he owns the stage, you can't take your eyes off him, but he's not an attention hogger, he's amazing in supporting roles too. He's fully focused no matter what he's delivering, a monologue or sitting in the background. Again, like having seen him in, in All My Sons, I, but I, look, I think it's different though for Colin fans because we're, our attention is always on Colin, you know? Like I went to see All My, yeah. like I wouldn't have gone to see All My Sons if it hadn't been for Colin Morgan. So of course my attention is going to even subconsciously be on Colin. So I'm not saying that your, uh, your remark isn't right, um, Ellen, but I just think that we do have a bit of a bias because we are kind of looking yeah. out for him. So, Also, and this is just my guess, I think our sweet muffin might be quite high on adrenaline and dopamine during his theatre performances and he loves every second of it. He even talked about being very energetic and bouncy when doing theatre, running up and down the hallways just a little steam. <laughs> Sorry, that's just adorable. <laughs> it might be one of the reasons why he doesn't do stage door. The adrenaline and dopamine drop combined with the usual exhaustion from being on stage might mean that he's just done for the night at the moment the curtain drops. I think that's definitely like worth noting but also he probably just gets nervous or like doesn't like it you know like fans this they are a scary uh being <laughs> so oh, i get yeah. it i get it okay and finally eloan said i keep forgetting to say this because i'm a terrible commenter but thanks for all the work you put into this podcast it's a real joy to listen to it's not just when it's two hours of talking about Colin. Ah, uh, you're welcome. Thanks for always leaving such yeah. in-depth comments and sharing your thoughts I with love us. It. I mean, it's it's almost like having you as a guest with with a bit of a delay regarding the topic. So you know, it's great. Okay, let's have a comment from someone else in between, because Sarah commented also on our Q and A episode in January. And Sarah said, Hi guys, I started listening to your podcast a few weeks ago when I moved from Dallas to Tampa and had a long drive to get there. I've just driven back to Dallas to get more of my stuff and listen to a bunch of your episodes on the way. I just wanted to thank you both so much for helping me get through that massive slog. You always have such interesting discussions and as other people have mentioned, I often find myself talking back to you while listening. That is such amazing feedback! <laughs> I'm just grinning awesome. because it makes me so happy and i can relate because i have the same thing with the glee podcast i listen to i'm like oh i wish i was there 
<laughs> I wish yeah. I was there because I would so disagree with this point. <laughs> so yeah. I I get it, and I'm glad that we can do that for you. Do you want to take the next part of this comment? I'm really glad that you're both willing to discuss the show's flaws and the reasons you love it anyway, because as much as I love the show and everything to do with it, there's so much about it that frustrates me or even infuriates me. I really love that the way you both are able to break down the reasons why some things simply don't work in the show. I know a particular epiphany for me was when Rox dissected the show's build-up of the magic reveal in season four that was never fulfilled. I remember when I first watched that season being convinced that Merlin's magic was going to be revealed at the end and then being flabbergasted that it wasn't, but I never understood why I'd been so sure. I am not crazy! <laughs> I'm so happy! No one ever said you were. I Listen, Momo, I wake up every day thinking I'm crazy, so especially when I'm like, and I often find I have to ask Momo for validation, like, am I wrong? <laughs> am I wrong in this? Did Morgana know about Merlin's magic and the nightmare begins. <laughs> so I always feel like I need validation. Uh, I always read into things, but I'm glad that you thought so. And I can't wait to dissect that plot point when we get to season four wrap up. I think that we'll, well, I hope Momo too, maybe now that I put that seed of doubt in people's minds, we'll be also paying attention to that as we watch season four. So thank you for bringing it up. They go on to say, Anyway, this episode was another lovely listen, and I really appreciated you addressing this issue of people trying to censor what others are allowed to talk about in fandom. It's such a big issue across fandoms, and I'm glad I'm not the only one who is frustrated by it. Thank you so much for all the time and effort you put into this podcast. And... So much the, for never bringing it up again! <laughs> I mean, this is this is a different topic. The other one was, you know, shipping wars. This is about being allowed to say negative things <laughs> I mean... but yeah it's just in my mind they are separate okay, because yeah. in my mind this is about you know being allowed to say that for example you don't like a specific writer or you don't like a fan artist for example okay and it's just and that is really hard i get that because you know we are allowed to criticize canon all we want because the people who created canon already made a ton of money from it but when we allow other, when we criticize other fans or just say that, you know, there are other fans whose work we personally don't like, it feels like we are devaluing people who are in the same boat as us, people who gave us something for free. But that's, in my mind, that's not what it is. Just like, I recognize and respect that people have put a lot of effort and time into creating something that is important to them. But that does not mean that I am obligated to like it just because I get to consume it for free. I will not tell this person to their face that I did not like their thing. I won't even go around and tell other people that I did not like this person's thing. I will, however, say occasionally, maybe in a private conversation when someone asks me a direct question, did you like this thing? I will say, no, I did not. Or I will make a generalized, you know, comment about like, this is a thing, like, these are things that I don't like, but I won't give you exact examples of this thing that I did not like, because I don't want to make anyone feel bad about the things that I did not like. Because, you know, who am I to make them feel terrible? <laughs> like, that's fine. Also, this has been, you know, 
burning a hole through my stomach to say this. <laughs> so I just wanted to take the opportunity to say it. <laughs> there you go. Also, it is incredible how many people have said something like what Sarah just said, that, you know, it's good to hear that it's allowed to say these things or to think these things or to feel these things. Like, so many people after this episode aired have come into the comments, have told us on Tumblr, have told us on Twitter, have told us on Discord, have told us privately that, you know, they appreciate it so much that someone has had the guts to say it. And it only shows how much all of us are holding back from each other because we're all afraid of maybe stepping on someone's toes. But in the process, process we just end up not trusting each other to be adults. Like, there's a there's a difference between being mean to someone and criticizing them harshly for the sake of just, you know, quote-unquote honesty or constructive criticism or whatever. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is being allowed to voice your own personal preference, your own personal opinion about something you personally don't enjoy for your own personal reasons. Yeah, and like, you know, I mean, I get called like a fix snob and a pod fix snob all the time by Momo. <laughs> and by yourself. I mean, you call yourself that as well. To be fair, you're the first person that called me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Just yeah. so clear about that. <laughs> um, I mean, you are. <laughs> but like, you know, I've I've never really like thought about it before. And then I was like, oh, Momo listens to, like, a lot more Podvik than I do, and, like, I just don't like a bunch of these Podvikers. And, like, I never felt bad about it, but I guess that's just because I don't really, like, I wouldn't go out and, like, you know, like Momo said, go and talk to people about it on Twitter, like, in public, like, necessarily, where, you know, everybody can, like, tag people. But it's, like, at the end of the day, it's not really a big deal like the only person that suffers is me because I don't get to listen to as much stuff yeah, so exactly. and I can understand like you know because yeah it's kind of like if you're a creator and someone were to turn around or like insinuate well I don't like this thing because it's not my taste and I can understand that that's frustrating because it's like well but what have I done wrong like why don't you like this like I can understand that because like if you're not saying well there's nothing like wrong I just I just don't like it like I can understand that that can be yeah, annoying exactly. but it's, it's like but what but like what can you do you know you can't really do anything about it yeah just you know I I like paintings by Salvador Dali and many people will find them ugly and unesthetic but I I like them it's just because I like them. And then there are other painters whose work I don't like just because I don't like it. It's just it's just your personal preference. It's like with music taste. I like this kind of music, but I don't like that kind of music just, just because I don't like it. It doesn't mean I hate the musicians who make it or that I wish they would change their style. It's just that I don't like it. And it's okay. Yeah. There are plenty of other people who will like it. Yeah things I will still do is, you know, promote them occasionally. I like I'll be, you know, you should totally go and check these people out because I recognize that other people might like this. And I will if I remember that they exist and if someone asks me for recommendations, I'll be like, oh you know what? They do this thing that you like or they draw these 
these pairings that you enjoy, you should go check them out. Because just because I don't like them doesn't mean I can't understand that other people might like it. And so I can still, you know, turn them towards them. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean that I have to actively keep people from checking it out. Unless they're Disney live action remakes, in which please make it your life's mission to actively prevent people from checking them out. Yes, please. I will agree on that. But that's also a whole other level of like commercialized things, like criticizing commercialized things, being mean about being mean to Disney is not actually going to hurt Disney in any way, because Disney does not care. Disney only cares about your money. That mouse. (laughs) Okay, yes, indeed. Guess what? We are back to a comment from Elowin. Just a quick one. Elowin yes. uh, said on our episode review of uh, Le Morte d'Arthur, she said, I've never seen Merlin using the rabbit's foot as trying to avoid his death. More like clutching a plush toy when you're scared. And I guess that's kind of more what he was doing. I don't know why at the time I, I thought he was trying to avoid death. Um, I guess... I just, that's kind of how I read it at the time. But I think that that's probably a more accurate description as he's just kind of frightened and guys gave him this rabbit's foot and that. And yeah, so I, I agree with you. We have another comment from Angel Rose on our Bradley episode in which we talked a lot about what actors should or shouldn't do when interacting with fans and what fans should or shouldn't do when interacting with actors. And this is the following Most actors, if they can't do a stage door signing or whatever, will have the manners to send a tweet, a message with the front of house staff or something to say, sorry, I can't stop to see you today. I'm busy, but thanks for coming. Hope you enjoyed the show. It's about respect on both sides. I will add here for context reference that Angel Rose mentioned earlier in the comment that they're in a wheelchair themselves and that it takes extra effort to book tickets to go see a show because, you know, things aren't made that accessible for people in wheelchairs, let's be real. Especially in London, (laughs) in an ancient city. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Nevertheless, this is now me, Momo, speaking. I don't entirely agree. I don't think that actors should have to apologize for not appearing at the stage tour, no matter the circumstances. I think they worked hard on stage to give you a great performance. And when I'm like me in my everyday life job, I'm not required to spend another half hour talking to patrons to make sure they come back to my place of work. And neither are actors obligated to do that once the performance has ended. If they do, awesome. Because thanks for their time and effort, it's highly appreciated. But if they don't, I might jokingly grumble about it, like, hmm, I stood in the cold to wait for them and they didn't show up. But, and, you know, it might, I might be disappointed because it was my only chance to see them because I'm only in the, in town for the day and then I'll be gone again and there's no other chance for me to see them. But I don't think I'm owed more of their time after the performance has ended. And sure, as a celebrity, they're more in the public eye and thus they're more or less always working, if you so will. But that's all the more reason to have boundaries as a fan and to respect that the celebrity also has boundaries and a life outside of their performance. And I think that in modern days, we've become more and more aware of that. But it's also easier and easier to disregard it, which is all the more reason, in my opinion, to check ourselves when we assume that a celebrity owes us time. And I know 
there is a big chance that this will come come across as ableist and terrible of me, which is not my intention, but please feel free to call me out regardless. But I get that for people with disabilities, it's a bigger effort to go see an actor on stage and then at the stage door, because especially the stage door will not be very accessible either. And that it's doubly disappointing if they don't show up because of how much more it costs you to get there. I really do get that. But even then, the actors don't owe you more of their time. And I think that what you could possibly do, and I do understand if this is the part that is especially ableist because, you know, you shouldn't have to to ask for accommodations for your disability. But what you could do is let the front office know that you're there and that it would be nice if the actor could meet you at the stage door for just a minute or two. Because then the actor will have the chance to know that it has taken you special effort and time to come see them. At least I hope that the actor will recognize that. And then actually come and talk to you for a minute or for two minutes. But if they don't know you're there and that it has taken you more effort than everyone else waiting at the stage door, then they have no reason to assume or they have no reason to go to the stage door when they weren't planning to do it. Like they will just assume that, you know, the people waiting there could have just as easily waited there any other night. Mm. I think it's really difficult, though, because at the end of the day, no one owes anyone anything in life. In my opinion, <laughs> like, I don't think any like I but I don't I don't think we owe people anything. But I think that there are. I think that being a good person and thinking of others and all these kinds of things that we try to do as being good people and, you know, doing right by others is really important. And I think that and I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for anyone else. But if it were me. I would feel bad and like I cheated people if I knew and most actors will know this because they're not idiots and like this is common knowledge that your fans will have traveled from, you know, either if it's just down the road or from halfway across the world, like from another country and spent an incredible amount of money on airfare and hotels just to be at this performance. I think that, of course, it's not in their contract and it's not part of their job per se to stop at the stage door. But I think that personally, I think that if you can't make it and I, I mean, I think it's different if that the, the stage door was a rarity that never happened. And then if an actor does it, then it's like an incredible honor. But the fact is, is that the stage door is kind of a tradition as far as I know, like for theater like not everyone will do it but like it, like most of the time you can at least see someone so if it's something that people know is sort of like a tradition and so they do weigh out whether it's in the cold the rain or the hot sun or whatever and they are waiting for you and then you know they're waiting for you and you don't show up then I think being courteous and apologizing for it I think that I'm not saying again I'm not saying it's owed but I think that you should do it just as a mark of being a decent human being, not because it's part of your job, but because you know that the people that waited spent a lot of time and money that they wouldn't usually spend just to see you in this play and get the chance to have a couple of words with you. And again, I can only speak for myself. 
I don't think I'd be able to sleep at night if I just like left with no thought to the fact that there are people that did all of that just to come and see me and then just was like yeah well I don't really owe them anything it's actually not my job so I'm not really going to feel bad about it I'd feel terrible about it and I get that some actors don't do stage door because they perhaps um are really exhausted or the fact that they uh get nervous around fans or have you know they're a bit agoraphobic and don't don't really want to be dealing with the crowds and and uh, and all that kind of stuff you know and we know that Colin is like that but I think maybe I just I come from a slightly different perspective where I really do respect actors and I would never ever do anything or I hope I've never done anything that would make them feel uncomfortable or make them feel like I'm entitled but I do also understand that as much as the actor has put in the work to be at to be in a play or come to the con or be in a movie or be on the red carpet us as fans have actually also put in a lot of work and effort to go and support them and make it possible for them to sell these tickets so I think there is a bit of a give and take there the actor can't exist and be employed if we don't go and pay for tickets. And that's not to say that that means that they have to dance like a monkey for us. But I think it's important to recognize that actors and artists don't just exist and get to make a living out of thin air. They're there because people love and respect them. And I think that that is also worthy. Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. I just don't necessarily agree. No, but that's, that's fine. <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> it's not the first time we've disagreed. No, something. that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> So Eloin commented on our Q&A part of the fandom recap and she says, first of all, I'd like to say that you're both totally awesome for doing this podcast, all the time and effort you put into it. I would burn myself out in the first three months, if not even sooner, if I took time away from my weekend and recovery time. You keep to schedule no matter what and you manage to organize a convention in the middle of all of that. Seriously, you have my utmost respect. And when you say it like that, it does sound a bit insane. <laughs> Um, I don't, it's very, very nice of you. Thank you. I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I think Momo kind of agrees. It's just kind of, especially for keeping on schedule, like it's just in my nature to commit. So if I've committed to something, then I've committed to something. And whether it's a hobby or whether I'm getting paid for it, it doesn't matter. Like I've said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this, this regularly if, 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 uh, if, uh, that's what I'm doing. And, that's how it's going to be. Uh, so unless I'm violently ill, um, <laughs> there's nothing really uh, that, in, in my opinion, there's really no excuse. Uh, and that's always how I've tried to live my life. And that's how I've been raised is that you uh, if you commit to something, you make sure that you do it. And that's how people know that they can rely on you. So I'm very happy that you're uh, that you're you know happy that we continue to to uh, still post bi-weekly and sometimes weekly like this week so <laughs> thank you but uh, yeah I'm not gonna lie and say it's not uh difficult like I again can only speak for myself I'm sure Momo will speak for herself very shortly um it's hard it is hard and I'm not gonna pretend like it's like it's not because there's no point of course you guys must understand that it's hard and we that's why it means so much to us when you interact and listen because it makes all of it worth it otherwise yeah. what would be the point <laughs> Exactly. These are my thoughts, exactly. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> then she goes on to say, 
My favourite underappreciated Mirtha moment is from 311, The Sorcerer's Shadow. Arthur is sulking and watching Merlin sharpen his sword. And they're talking about him having to fight his father the next day. It's so nicely domestic. I love that moment because that's the one where he's just like, what do I do, Merlin? Like, literally, Merlin, if you were in my show, like, if you were actually the Prince of Camelot, what would you do in this situation? Like, I'm not saying I'll listen to you, but no, really, I'll listen to you. So please just tell me what to do. <laughs> it's that it's that scene. And it's so cute. And that's, I think, when Merlin tells him to throw the fight. And Arthur listens. And it's just adorable. I love that scene, too. I forgot about that one. She goes on to say, Freya was the first person who Merlin intentionally revealed his magic to. Not Gilly. I don't know why we never really think about Freya. Because we had uh, Cello on the podcast in the music episode. And she also said, oh, Gilly was the first person that Merlin revealed his magic to and we never thought of Freya and I'm trying to think why that is maybe maybe there's something that I don't know but um yeah no that's that's uh that's fair but I feel like the Gilly moment was just um much more impactful personally so that's probably why we remember it and then we get back into the topic of queerbaiting earlier one says I think that Merlin was not queer baity. It was definitely queer coded, especially as the show progressed, but the writers never said or hinted that Merthyr could be canon. I'm not sure BBC would even allow them to make Merthyr canon, and they could have chosen a different way to handle the finale, but it's pretty much a gift to Merthyr fandom. I mean, I lived through the shitstorm of steric queer baiting and, and subsequent big fuck you to steric fandom, and that was shitty and terrible on so many levels. Modern writers didn't do that. Okay, so not all queerbaiting has to be as obvious as what the writers of Sherlock or apparently Teen Wolf did. Supernatural is also pretty queerbaity, although I haven't seen anything beyond season 5. But even in season like 4 and 5, the DCL was strong. And before that, the Wincest was also pretty strong, to the point where the creator of the show admitted that there's a lot of homoerotic subtext between the brothers. So... You know, not everything has to be very obvious to still be queer baiting. And also, I will point out that we are going to have an episode about this, so I don't want to actually go super in detail here, but seeing as it's being brought up, I will just say like my five cents. In my opinion, queer baiting does kind of have two sides to it. It's either the side where um, you have people that are being hinted at like they will be in a relationship and then you kind of like poof like it's in thin air or you have kind of what is in Merlin which is that there is romantically coded like writing that never will like uh, we knew that they were never going to be canon although I still maintain that I thought that they were going to kiss in the finale <laughs> um we 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 knew that but it doesn't mean that they're interactions were not romantically coded they just were like the way that they were written and the way that they were acted you could replace any one of them with a girl and they would have been a couple and that is what I'm talking about when I talk about queer baiting and what happens with a lot of male male pairings no not all male male relationships in media are queer baiting many of them are just good friends and they're written that way but the ones that aren't again 
the test is just swap one of them out for a girl and guess if they'd be in a relationship. If they were, it's probably queer baiting is what I'm trying to get at, basically. And I think what makes it worse is that if it was a girl and a boy and they were heavily romantically coded and the fans were screaming, oh, we want them together, we want them together. It also is frustrating because the part of the queer baity aspect that comes to it is like, well, people that ship a girl and a boy pairing that isn't canon usually people won't go around being like oh don't read into it that way like people normally won't do that they'll kind of be like oh maybe maybe not like they did with the merlin morgana thing like they were kind of like "Ooh, maybe like at cons and things they were like maybe they will maybe they won't who knows um and then with mirtha it all of a sudden becomes a big taboo oh 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 no you can't mention that because it's two dudes like that's yeah. just weird and that's also where like where there's a difference is like it's that's where it's also kind of that's part of the queer baiting culture and that's why Mirtha was very much queer baity but again we will have an episode on this I don't yeah. want to like spend a whole lot of time on it but yeah, yeah. just my five cents <laughs> yeah. Eloine has just one more thing to say about this and it is I think that if they had to get rid of the queer baiting in some way they would not go the way of making Mirtha canon Instead, we lose many of the moments that this fandom cherishes, and maybe the fandom wouldn't even be here now. So even if it was queerbaiting, we're definitely benefiting from it. Which, we're not saying that fandoms can't benefit from queerbaiting material, but the damage to actual queer people who are hoping for representation of people like them in a popular TV show is bad. That is the issue with queerbaiting. The fans are supposed to believe that these two characters could be a couple, just like Brock said, you know, they might, they might not. And that keeps the queer audience glued to the screen. It keeps them coming back because they hope that they will see actual representation of their personal identities. Only to have it blow up in their face in the end when the creators are like, oh no, we were kidding, they're just bros. It's your fault if you thought otherwise. Yeah. yeah it sucks okay. <laughs> um but again we're gonna yeah. have more yeah, on the this. rest of it we're gonna get really into when we get into all right then rhd also has something to say about our season one recap and she says i am not fond of gwen although i really loved her in the first season it was pretty clear she was smart and understood the dynamics of her situation and was generally sweet and funny then as she was sucked into the helpless queen of the later seasons I just couldn't. It's too bad, too, since Gwen had a lot of potential. I loved when she was investigating things with Merlin, or they were helping each other out. Oh well. I think that pretty much is what you said, Rox, isn't it? Yeah. And what what I have been saying that season one, season one, Gwen was best Gwen, like the tech yeah. of Gwen, and she was cute, cute and bubbly, and like you say, kooky. And oh, just what RHD said, and that she understood her situation. I liked the fact that Gwen managed to get shit done, even with the limitations of her class. Yeah, although I will say that I personally don't really disagree, uh, don't really agree that she knew her station because she keeps lecturing Arthur quite thoroughly in uh, Moment of Truth. And we've talked about that in the review, so you yeah, can go listen true. to that which really was not her place in many ways. But she does apologize at least. And it did kind of come out of like, it wasn't, it wasn't like once in future queen where she says it and then he gives her a chance to be quiet and she still carries on. Yeah. <laughs> like true. she kind of 
bit her tongue and realized, you know, actually yeah, she, maybe she has a, I think she even has a line like, ooh, I should not have said that. Yeah, exactly. I'm yeah. sorry, it won't happen again. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, and I like female characters like that because when in history when they have managed to rise up and become successful and powerful for me as a woman it makes it so much more impactful to watch their journey and to see what they've achieved considering how much was in their path we know how much struggle went into that and I think here with Gwen they kind of want to have their cake and eat it but yeah I like season one Gwen she's so cute Archie then says as for tone, I find that season one is the most lighthearted. Their episodes give me time to breathe before they get serious again, and there is something about the pacing and the writing that just makes me smile, even if there is something dire going on, because there is enough humor in each episode to lighten things up. I don't find that putting a humorous episode into a season lightens up the rest of the season, rather it seems to highlight the serious tones of the rest of the episodes in that year. You get Beauty and the Beast, and then the next two episodes are very serious which find that in the sins of the father, and they seem more dire because of the humour of Beauty and the Beast. I think we agree here, don't we? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've never really agreed with their whole philosophy of humorous episode of the week. Honestly, Beauty and the Beast part two is like the only funny TM episode of Merlin that I ever really enjoyed. I think I wouldn't consider... Okay, hang on. I know Sweet Dreams is a comedy episode, but... Because it's so heavily based on A Midsummer Night's Dream and there are aspects of it that actually are supposed to be dramatic and they do have stakes, like with Arthur and Gwen's relationship, I don't really see it on the same kind of level. And Beauty and the Beast Part 2 does also have stakes because Arthur obviously gets uh, demoted or disinherited or whatever you want to call it. So there are stakes there, but that is it, it's just not as, like great and it is mostly a comedy episode goblins gold i just think is a bit stupid like really stupid i'm trying to think of other pure comedy ones that like, they've done goblins gold could have made for a funny b plot yeah but not a main plot no and like when i think of episodes like a servant of two masters which probably was the funniest episode of season four it's actually not a comedy episode you know yeah um and now that i think about it really i think goblin's gold is really the only misstep and okay beauty and the beast should never have taken up two episodes i'm still when i get around to it i'm going to try and edit those two down to try and make it 45 minutes i'm going to try and do it <laughs> Because I feel like it's just ridiculous that they took that much airtime. Um, apart from that, again, Cornelius Segan was a very funny episode, but it didn't necessarily have a lighthearted storyline to it in the end. You know, it was actually kind of like a serious story. So I think they only mis misstepped a couple of times. Honestly, I probably think that their biggest mistake in the later seasons was just not having enough humor. Like, yeah, like Archie said, kind of scattered scattered around um but yeah goblin's gold man i i laughed when i first saw it but now i'm like oh i feel terrible that i laughed because <laughs> it's so bad yeah all right then archd says i thought merlin changed when he poisoned morgana after that there was a kind of darkness to him and that's when i started questioning if merlin was a hero or a villain up until then he would get upset and then snap back to that sweetness afterwards not so much 
I think this was in response to something I said when I was like, when do we think Merlin actually kind of got that little like mark on him that made him turn sinister and you know i don't know i can't remember what i said actually um i don't remember what i said either but i never remember what i said <laughs> and then arch t says as for gwen never talking about her father's death some people don't talk about something that traumatic i have a few things in my life that i just don't talk about but were awful so gwen not mentioning her dad again makes sense to me and really i agree that that can be true and i think think that it's strange that it never got brought up again anyway like maybe Gwen doesn't want to talk about it but why does no one else mention it ever again like the only time it got mentioned is when Elian appears and in that moment it was only referenced as Elian wasn't there for Tom's funeral like if the writers didn't have to explain Elian's absence in that episode they wouldn't have put it in and then okay we never see Tom's funeral so we don't even know when it happened, if it happened in, uh, you know, to kill the king or later. So Elian could have been there, but then they still would have had to mention it. Like Gwen would have had to say, I haven't seen you since that's burial or something like that. Like there had to have been a reference in some way. So, yeah. I mean, I they also, I mean, the only other time it's brought up is in Queen of Hearts when, um, Gwen says to Uther that my father was an innocent man and you executed him. Right. That's it. Which she obviously looks sad about, but that's also because yeah. she's scared. I just I just think that in this show, loss and trauma get swept under the carpet a lot. And yeah. while I agree that not every character who is traumatized or feels grief wants to talk about it, for one reason or another, like Merlin doesn't want to talk to Arthur about Freya, but that's because then he'd have to explain who Freya is, and that would open up a whole can of worms about, you know, magic. It's, you know, it just gets strapped under the carpet a lot, and no one, no one ever really discusses grief and loss. Like, there are very few instances where, you know, in To Kill the King, where it's a theme already of, like, fathers dying, and then Uther and Morgana talk about Golois, and Uther talks about how important Morgana is to him because Golois was the kind of friend that Morgana is to him now, and all of that. But other than that, you know, I can, if I really sit down, I can probably count on both of my hands the instances in which trauma and loss are really addressed in some kind of meaningful way in this show. I agree. But then again, I think that it, it's a testament to Bradley and Colin that I still feel that pain in them, even though it's not really in the writing. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I think that I still feel that weight on them, especially mm. in Colin's performance as Merlin as, as the seasons go on. Like we say, he's a very damaged person by the end of it. And part of that is because of all the loss he's encountered. So yeah. I, I do feel it just not in the way that the writers want to show us. All right, we have two more comments by Elioen. The first one is also on the season one recap. And we did talk about like houses, like Hogwarts houses for the characters. And Elioen says, Arthur is so not a Slytherin, not even at the beginning. If anything, he'd be a Gryffindor. Not to mention that Slytherins aren't always all about themselves. Try hurting their loved ones and you're in real trouble. Merlin is a perfect example. Which is so funny because that is literally the definition of a Slytherin. 
I feel so happy right <laughs> like, now. <laughs> like, I love that Eloin just made your argument for you, Rox. Yeah, like... like Slytherin yeah. do take badly to having their loved ones harmed or seeing someone they feel loyal to hurt, and then they forget all reason and go on <laughs> yeah. an avenge trip. Yeah. Why does this sound familiar? All oh, right, <laughs> Arthur does it in Poison Chalice, yeah. then in Moment of Truth, and then in Lancelot and Guinevere. Oh, and again in The Sins of the Father, and in Servant of Two Masters. Yeah, I stopped looking after a while because I was just like, <laughs> he keeps doing. This. I just feel like what I'll do is I'll link in the uh, I'll uh, I'll ask Momo to link in this in this episode the. Uh, the Tumblr that I found really fascinating when I got into my like obsessive sorting mode. Like I love this kind of stuff and it's called sorting hat chats on Tumblr. And they basically created a system based on the sorting house songs, as well as the characters that are sorted into their respective houses and their personalities and just their own intuition and came up with a beautiful system of sorting that includes primary houses and secondary houses. And just to very briefly explain what that is, a primary house is your why and your secondary house is your how. So your primary house you'd be sorted into basically for your morals. Where does your morality come from? And your how is how like what do you do once you have that morality so as an example not everyone will be sorted by their why some people will and a lot of people will but not everyone Ginny Weasley in these persons um sorting is sorted into Gryffindor not for her why but because of her how her primary is actually Slytherin she's fighting in the war of Hogwarts uh for her house for Hogwarts because she feels it's hers not because it's the right thing to do TM her Gryffindor is her how it's the jump uh before you look leap before you look approach fire passion um not aggressive in a bad way, but aggressive in the sense that um, there isn't much planning involved. Um, Slytherin howls are also like that, but they're more kind of like uh, shapeshifters in that sense, you know, snakes, obviously. And here I think that Arthur's Arthur is basically Ginny Weasley. <laughs> he, in my opinion, is a Slytherin Gryffindor. Slytherin, why? Very much about... Um, his happiness and the happiness of those around him. I think he's very much influenced by his father's Hufflepuff primary, which I think that is what it is, um, which is why he has such an identity crisis a lot of the time when it comes to what's the best thing to do. This is literally his character arc at me or Camelot, the people I love or Camelot. And he manages to find a balance with his his Slytherin in my opinion as time goes on but when he's younger it's his Slytherin always wins out he manages to cloak it a bit better and like manage it because it's what's expected of him and he has to and then his how is I think sometimes more apparent that's why I think people sort him into Gryffindor sometimes because his like leap before you look kind of personality is so obvious that you're like well clearly that's a Gryffindor and it is but he's also a Slytherin. So that's just my five cents. Please read through this um, thing that we're going to link. Uh, 
Elowin and anyone else that's interested in this because if you're in the Harry Potter fandom then you probably like sorting people too and once you've read through it and you kind of have looked at all the examples and stuff I would love for you to come back and tell me if you still agree that he's a Gryffindor or whether you would agree with me and say that he's a Slytherin and also I just like the idea of him and Merlin being in the same house because I don't like them being apart ever so but I do think that he is a Slytherin and I think Momo actually ended up agreeing with me when we went over this like a year and a half ago (laughs) I mean I still sort of you know like to see him as a Hufflepuff for the yeah. for the lol factor, but yeah, yeah. um, yeah. If if we're talking canonical sorting, then yeah, Arthur is a Slytherin. Um, then the rest of Elowen's comment is about Arthur not being such an awful person at the start of the show. I'll continue with the Harry Potter reference from before and use the non-evil Marauders trio as an example. All of them were Gryffindors. All of them were right brats in their teenage years, but all of them had good hearts and were genuinely good people. That's how I've always viewed Arthur. He had his bratty moments, but he was never a bad person. And I don't have necessarily a comment about Arthur, but I would like to point out that Peter Pettigrew, like this was not a trio. They were a quartet and Peter Pettigrew wasn't evil in the beginning. Peter Pettigrew is dead. I've never known of a Peter Pettigrew. I don't know what you're talking about. Peter turned sides, but that's not inherently evil. He was their friend. James and Sirius and Dreamus wouldn't have been friends with Peter if he'd been the way he was in Prisoner in Prisoner of Azkaban or Goblet of Fire or any books thereafter. Peter turned into this person over time through circumstances we don't know about. Okay, so I was just like, I'm not saying that I'm a Peter Pettigrew fan, but I just get really upset when people forget that he was part of the Marauders and that he was friends with all of them and that they were friends with him for a reason. They, you know, just I needed to put this righteous fury out there. I've just I've just never heard of the name Peter Pettigrew and him being friends with the pure souls that are James Sirius and Remus. <laughs> what do you mean that that traitorous rat was ever... Oh, sorry. Oh, now I remember who he is. Today on Merlison, the Harry Potter podcast... Yeah. <laughs> so the last comment that we have is from Elwyn. <laughs> and she responded to our Arthur Returns fic episode, and she has this to say. As for Merlin, I agree that the show implies that he had interest in women too, so he could be bi as well. But my headcanon is that he was still finding himself in the first two seasons of the show, so he could have thought that finding women aesthetically pleasing equals sexual attraction. I even think that what he felt for Freya was more of a strong feeling of kinship rather than love, and it got all jumbled up in his teenage head. And maybe I'm wrong and didn't notice, but I don't remember him showing clear interest in women after season two. And that's actually a very good point. He doesn't really after season two the last person that he shows interest for is freya um and i don't think there are any any others like there's no funny jokes there's no quips there's no funny looks there's nothing and that just that just means that he's still in love with freya obviously of course uh the fandom otp (laughs) (laughs) yeah to the point where everyone forgets that freya exists exactly um and i completely can get behind this uh this canon too um that he kind of was finding himself and uh you know also i think even from the fact that like we like we keep mentioning arthur uh, merlin's focus shifts more and more to arthur as the seasons go on whether you want to attribute that to romance or platonicism or obsession with keeping him alive all three i think are valid <laughs> um then, of course, it makes sense that he wouldn't be looking at anyone else, men or women. Uh, so that could also be 
a contributing factor to why we don't see him taking interest in others. I personally, even though I know that the creators of the show would beg to differ, but they're wrong, <laughs> um, would uh, that they thought that him and um, Sifa had a thing and there is literally no canonic evidence of Merlin being attracted to Sifa. They had a moment in the corridor where he helped her pick things up because he is a decent human being. <laughs> and that he is would. it. Yeah. <laughs> but I quite like this headcanon that maybe he was uh, kind of experimenting or kind of figuring things out in season two and that, you know, whatever. But I kind of, just like the idea of Merlin being bi I feel like it just it sounds I think it just suits him I just do I just think it suits him I think that there's something to be said for the fact that even from the point of view of that he's meant to be a creature of magic so he's not really meant to be human anyway kind of thing like it just makes sense to me I think I said this but I personally prefer to think of Merlin as Pan yeah which I know some people will consider synonymous with being bi, but... I mean, there is overlap, but but yeah, it's... Although I can see an argument for being bi. Like, okay, I read this post on Tumblr, because where else am I going to read about anything ever, which explains sort of the difference between being bi and being pan, although they are, as I just said, effectively synonymous in this day and age in our understanding of gender. And it is that... When you're bisexual or biromantic, your attraction to people of the same gender as you are is different than from your attraction to people of other genders. So your attraction will feel differently to you. Whereas if you are pan, your attraction to everyone feels the same regardless of gender. That's so interesting. I love that. Yeah, I found that very interesting. So in that sense, I do think actually that Merlin is probably bi because I would say that his attraction to women manifests differently than his attraction to men. Yeah, (laughs) it's very different. Um, Which, yeah, I think I think that's really interesting. And I love the idea of, you know, um, that post but also I feel you know kind of obligated to put a disclaimer that a whatever you choose to identify these characters as is completely valid because yes. their sexualities are not talked about or important in the show for obvious reasons yes. and b if you choose to eschew labels altogether and this doesn't matter to you that is also incredibly valid I know yes. I definitely fall more on the spectrum of I hate labels and everything they stand for so I completely get if you also feel that way so that's also fine we're just kind of using this as like a bit of an academic exercise just because it's fun (laughs) it doesn't actually mean anything and you know like the the upside of labels is just having a clear clearer sort of idea of what everyone is talking about so if you use the same label at least most people will agree on what you are actually talking about absolutely yeah uh one more thing that Ellie had to say for this episode is that she had a lot more figrex which we shall link to in our post as per usual and this now concludes this episode amazing uh it yes. was really interesting to talk about all these things guys and i hope that you'll continue to comment we would really love you to continue 
to come and talk to us about your thoughts on Merlin and all the episodes that we do. We love reading them and we love talking about them. So please carry on. Exactly. And just to give credit where credit is due, our music was composed by Sidesteppings from Merlisten. Any additional music used in this podcast comes from freesound.org. The manip for our cover art was made by Brolin's Keeve and I made the cover. And I am Momotastic27 on Tumblr and also Momotastic27 on Twitter. And I'm Miss Snowfox on Tumblr with an extra X and on Instagram. You can find me at Miss Snowfox and also Miss Snowfox Cosplays. So thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Next week, yes, it's only a week until the next episode, we will be talking about the female villains of season one with, at the very least, one guest. Maybe we'll dig up another one until then. But in the meantime, I have been Momotastic. And I'm Miss Snowfox. And this has been Merlissen. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>